Mr. Hogan. Welcome to the VC Outdoor and Environmental Studies podcast, where we're going to cover some information related to the Unit 1, Unit 2 course, and hopefully this can be of assistance to you when revising content, consolidating your understanding, or even preparing for assessment. I know that many of you may have used podcasts throughout previous years to help further your studies and increase your understanding, so hopefully you can get some great gains from that throughout this year as well. First off the rank, we're going to have a quick chat about terminology because as you would know, as we headed through into further studies, terminology is absolutely imperative or a good understanding of the various terminology that you might use in order to convey meaning and to really give depth to responses when you're considering potential uh, assessments in the future. We need to really make sure that our language around outdoor environments and locations and experiences is accurate and is as concise as possible. If we all start using colloquial terms or inaccurate terminology, then it's going to become quite confusing or responses, explanations may not quite have the depth that they need. Some of the key aspects that we probably want to look at is an understanding of the term nature. What are we actually talking about when we're talking about nature? Now, we could look at that term in a whole bunch of different ways. We could be talking about the nature of an individual or the nature from a behavioural context. We could be talking about nature from a biological perspective. We could be looking at plant life. We could be looking at a location or a place. That could be described as nature. So we need to be quite specific when we are using that term, that we have the context of that well and truly clear and well and truly spelt out. Ultimately, if we are looking at something uh, in the context of nature, we are looking at something that might include living things, it might include the elements that make up a certain place or a certain location, it could be an ecosystem, it could be an element of an ecosystem. You just have to make sure that when you are explaining that one, it is really clear as to what you are talking about. Outdoor environments, it's part of the name of the subject, so you'd like to think we'd have this one pretty right, is basically consideration of a land area situated outdoors that has a particular style or a particular type of setting to it. For instance, we could talk about the Alps as an outdoor environment. That's where skiing, bushwalking, mountain biking, certain activities might take place that may not necessarily take place in other locations. There may be a coastal outdoor environment where swimming, snorkeling, exploring rock pools might take place that couldn't necessarily happen in other outdoor environments. Within natural environments, we can probably start to explore a little bit deeper into a few different aspects, particularly from a land management or a familiarity with human interaction perspective. And what we want to address there is urban or built environments. So essentially we're talking about areas of land that have had significant impacts and that have been built up throughout settlement, um, be it European, Asian, wherever that is in the context of the world. For Australia, we'd be talking about European settlement and development of cities, development of towns. Now, just because it's a small location doesn't necessarily mean it can't be described as a built or urban environment. So you might think urban, well that has to be city. Not necessarily. An urban environment could be a town, a small country town or a rural town. And if you're not really comfortable using 
urban to describe those, you might describe those as a built environment. So there are other features or other buildings, structures, developments, shifting land, earthworks that has gone place around those areas that describe those as a built environment. Now, that's all human impact and wouldn't have occurred naturally. So let's talk about wilderness. Nothing sounds more appealing or adventurous than getting out into the wilderness or getting amongst the wild, but what does that actually mean? Because we need to consider that from a range of different perspectives. Ultimately, we're looking at classifying wilderness by size, by degree of remoteness, and also by the level of interaction that there may have been with humans at various points in time. So, size-wise, for something to be described as wilderness, you're looking at something that's probably over 2,000 hectares. So, it's a pretty significant chunk of land or, or an area. So that's fine, we can say we've got this massive area, but then what do we need to consider? Degree of remoteness is something that um, is important. How easy is it to actually access it? So if something is sitting immediately next to a highway, not very remote. If something has lots of roads, lots of access, you can get in and out all the time, it's not what you'd call a remote area. The Greater Bendigo National Park, we wouldn't call a remote area. It's surrounded by roads, there are roads running through it everywhere, it's really easy to access. You can literally jump over some people's back fences and land up in that national park. So we wouldn't describe that one as remote. If we consider the Alpine National Park, significant distance to travel to get to and into the park, degree of remoteness, yeah there are roads that, uh, that maybe go into those areas but there are not many. And not only that, they're also difficult to access and would often, in some places, require pretty specific types of vehicles in order to get to them. So that brings us to our final point in how much interaction has there been with them. So essentially we're looking for somewhere that you could describe as untouched or unimpacted, not impacted by human interaction. So somewhere like the Alps, which obviously we've just been talking about, is probably pretty significant given that we're heading there on our first trip. There is human interaction there. There are walking tracks amongst the park and even the off-track sections, people have most likely walked through various points there. Maybe not every single location, but a number of those locations. So we need to look at whether there's any modification or damage to those areas. If there's not, then we can probably safely say that that might be a wilderness area or that we can consider that a wilderness area there. If there had been significant impacts, so lots of interaction with humans, lots of sort of touristy type things set up throughout the area, then that could potentially redefine whether we call that wilderness or not. A term that's caused some confusion amongst people in terms of what we're actually referring to or what we're aiming at when we're talking in OES is the concept of a managed park. Now, we're looking at something that is managed by an organisation or a group and ultimately we're probably looking at state or uh, national governments that may be having control over what happens in those particular areas. So if we come across the terminology managed park and we're considering what we're talking about, we're probably looking for state or national parks. Um, you may come across regional parks or historic areas in some places. We're not talking about the local playground or the local park as we know it 
um, as we may call it, within an urban environment. We're looking for those more significant protected natural areas that have been set apart or set aside for a particular reason. So hopefully in previous years you may have researched the Greater Bendigo National Park. What's it on about? Why do we have it? Ultimately that whole national park has been set up for the preservation of box ironbark forests and to ensure that the longevity of that species of tree is continued and that that is preserved for, uh, for future generations but then also for the biodiversity of, uh, of where we are. Which I guess brings me to a couple of more terms that uh, you'll need to know about or you need to be able to understand what they actually mean. If I say something's endemic, or if we're talking in class and we're referring to something being endemic, then it's natural to a particular area. If you've ever headed up to the Grampians, you would find Grampians thryptamine, which is incredibly prevalent around that area to the point that you would say it's an endemic species. It's found there. There is also a whole bunch of wildflowers and other plants up there that um, you can only find in the Grampians and probably wouldn't grow in many other places, that would be an endemic species. The biodiversity that uh, we might refer to within particular places, then we're talking about the variety that exists amongst plants and animals. So something that has an incredibly broad range of biodiversity, we'd be seeing lots of animals, lots of plants, all different types, all different species within that same ecosystem within that place. If we're talking about places, then we may even refer to that as a habitat. Um, obviously, a good range is important and diversity is important in particular areas. That's probably um, something that we'll cover in the future when we're talking about those things. But as long as you know that biodiversity is a range of uh, plant or animal life within a particular place, then that would be pretty good keeping in mind the definitions of flora and fauna, flora being plants and fauna being animals as well. Okay, one of the super cool things about Australia is the absolute range of outdoor environments that we might come across within our country. So we're talking about particular areas that have a certain biome. There's another piece of terminology for you to include. So it's a consistent or a consistent variety of... Uh, flora and fauna that occur within that habitat or within that area. So although you might find it in one location and then also at the other end of the country in another location, it might be described as a particular type of environment based upon the makeup of the, um, the biological community that, that exists there. So uh, first one to talk about if we're running through pretty well alphabetically, the Alps or the Alpine area we're looking at significant mountains that um, sit at an altitude. Essentially, it'll generate snowcap through through winter. Now, the highest parts of the alpine mountain ranges or the alpine areas um, is described as the alpine section of that uh, that area of the Alps, and you'll find that in that area there's particularly just grasslands. So it's a majority of grassland at the top of the summits or up around that area and you're going to find that there's not necessarily big trees right up on the top of that area. Once you start dropping back down into the subalpine and the montane regions then you're going to find an increase in different types of trees and obviously then down to the foothill forests you'll find some other things down there. But if we're talking about the Alps as a particular area we're going to be looking at, like I said, grasses at the top then into 
smaller shrubs, smaller bushes, smaller trees, and then the further down the mountain you get, the taller the trees get. We'll be able to actually see that through, provided the weather's nice and clear, through various sections of our hike, and we'll be able to point it out on um, alternate mountain ranges, and it actually becomes really quite obvious once you are up in that area, which is pretty cool. Next, we'd be looking at grasslands, and essentially the western region of Victoria, and also a few parts of Gippsland would be good places where you could find examples of grasslands in existence. So if you are ever down around the western districts where at the moment it's probably dominated by agriculture, um, but you can often find that they're a real sort of volcanic region, so lots of rock and that sort of thing sitting around that'll indicate that it's a volcanic region that sort of if you're looking at um, the, the ground around you and the, the type of hills and that sort of thing that might be there, you're looking for areas that are covered in grasses or shrubs, not necessarily many trees, small number of trees, not super tall. You're going to find that rainfall is generally a little bit lower, but um, it might still be prevalent. Anyone who's spent some time along the Great Ocean Road will probably be really familiar with this particular type of outdoor environment, although they may not have necessarily realised it at the time. But we're referring to heathlands. So we're looking at trees and shrubs um, that often sit sort of not super high, not super tall, but in windswept, salt sprayed coastal areas. It could be really rocky or it could be really sandy underfoot. So the the soil is probably what you call a low fertility soil. It's not sort of somewhere where you'd expect lots and lots of plants to be growing, but these particular species really do take off in those areas. Around that type of um, foliage or flora, you're going to find lots and lots and lots of bird species will be around there. Particularly, you're looking for eagles, parrots, lorikeets, that sort of thing around Victoria that um, you'll find through there. Heathlands, interestingly, fire plays a really important part of those. A lot of the plants that you, or some of the plants I should say, are reliant on fire in order to regenerate. So they're looking for fire and heat to open up the seed pods so that they can release the seeds, they can take up and germinate and they can grow new plants, which is pretty, uh, pretty interesting. If you go down around Anglesey, then you'll definitely find um, some heathlands around there. In fact, I'm pretty sure one of the areas down there is known as the Anglesey Heath. So not creative with their name, but it's a really good example of the type of um, outdoor environment that we're looking at there. The Mallee, again, another region that has small trees. We're looking at eucalyptus trees that dominate that particular area. You're going to be seeing um, some pretty dry, sandy soils around that particular area in the Mallee. It's hot, it's dry, it's not necessarily a um, location that you're going to find lots of water anywhere. But the plants and the animals that live there um, are really well adapted to that particular climate. So you're looking for really distinctive birds. It might be a mallee fowl, um, might be some eagles in that particular area. Plant-wise, you're looking at low-growing shrubs or plants that don't need lots of water and can establish themselves in sort of sandy or not fertile soils along the way as well. One of the really common 
types of outdoor environments in Australia would be dry forests and woodlands. And that's quite a large collective term that's given to the forests that are around. And they're not really one particular type only because we've got such a wide range of trees and other plants dependent on where we are that that can sometimes influence the type of forest that it is but it would still be described as what's called a dry forest or a woodland area. So often we're talking about mountain ranges so lots of drainage you know lots of um, sort of catchment areas I guess but also not necessarily the best soil. If you think about your time in the Grampians and how rocky some of that ground and some of that terrain was, it's pretty impressive that trees get to the size that they do in those areas. But they've become resilient over time and found ways to source water and to get a footing into the ground. Around Bendigo, you're looking at box iron bark forests. Um, that's considered dry forest or woodland as well. Within these particular environments, you're definitely going to find some of those marquee Australian animals, kangaroos, wallabies, koalas, depending on where you might be, possums, and then obviously the reptiles that we all know around Australia, um, snakes, lizards, goannas, all that sort of thing. Most of you will have probably at some point in your life already well and truly gone through some of these dry forest and woodland areas, whether it be in the car, driving in and out of town, or out on foot as well. Wet forests and rainforests are sometimes a little bit uh, harder to come across and harder to find. They do exist within Victoria and obviously other parts of Australia. If you think about the Daintree Rainforest in Queensland, that's clearly by name an example of that. How would we know if we were in one? Well, you're probably going to be looking at types of trees or plants that have really wide uh, foliage or canopies, is how we'd call it and mosses, shrubs, that sort of thing that sit down. So there might be really tall trees that are fighting for sunlight and then other plants in the lower shrubs have really wide canopies so that they can try and capture as much sunlight for that photosynthesis as they possibly can. Within uh, those environments, you're probably going to find um, reasonably moist soil as well. Um, Obviously, that contributes to the naming wet forest or rainforest. Um, you're probably talking about areas that have a bit more moisture than other parts. Around Victoria, you'd probably consider the Otways and also the Yarra Ranges as parts where you'd really be able to see that quite, um, quite prevalently. And if you've been to those places, you would know that they probably have good rainfall there as well. Our final two outdoor environments for us to consider would be, water, but they're both waterways. The inland waterways and wetlands, as the name would suggest, are inland. So we're talking about rivers, lakes and wetland areas that are not hitting the coast. And given the way the weather is in Australia, some of them fluctuate in terms of volume and quantity. And obviously that has an impact on the plant life and the animal life around there. Having said that, you then start to find things like migratory birds will move around from one particular area to another particular area. And if they are routinely following similar routes, then you might start calling that migratory paths uh, from one waterway to the next. In Victoria, there are quite a number of different waterways that we could use as examples. Everyone instantly is going to think of the Murray River, massive waterway that's a naturally occurring naturally occurring waterway. It has had some man-made impacts on that, uh, obviously, but initially a naturally flowing waterway there. 
the other marine, uh, so sorry, the other aquatic environment is the coast and marine environments. Sorry about that, it started a bit there. And obviously, hence the name, coast, we're looking at somewhere by the ocean there. Around Victoria, you're going to see sort of on the shoreline or on the landform, probably lots of sandstone. Um, you're going to see cliffs, you're going to see lots of rocks. Different points in time, you'll see lots of dunes, which are home to grasses, which are home to low shrubs. And within that, the birds that are common in those coastal areas as well. Obviously, once you start getting into the water, then you're talking about a whole different type of marine environment as well. Um, some of those areas around Victoria are even protected as national parks or um, protected areas in waterways, which has impacts on fishing or recreational access. That's about it for episode one. I think we've covered a fair bit of stuff there. And obviously, like I said at the start there, it's all terminology. It's all key pieces of information that you're going to need to be able to use accurately when writing responses or considering different areas in the future. If you've got any questions or want clarification or anything that you have heard, by all means, send me an email, chogan at cmc.vic.edu.au or stop and chat to me at school and we can have a bit of a yarn as well. Catch you all next time. See you later.